chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him to say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and lives alive, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you not need, you know, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give them marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love, the neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come and worship you. Lord, we do thank you for resurrection, for the hope that we have of eternal life with you in heaven for eternity. Lord, you are so good to us. We praise you and thank you. We ask now that uh, you would prepare our hearts, open our minds, open our hearts, that we would receive the words of yours that uh, you will bring through us. Again, we just thank you and praise you and give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
much of the same mind. He has thousands, tens of thousands even, books in his private library. He's read every single one of them. He's going to tell you everything that goes on in the book that he has read and when he read it and where it was. Well, you can imagine sitting down with a man like Charles Haddon Spurgeon or Albert Moeller, who I'm just speaking of, and having a discussion with him on any topic. Maybe you're an author. You've written a book. You've studied the book for years. You've studied the topic for years. You've written the book. And now this man is interviewing you. And you would be able to quickly, in just a few minutes, realize the man interviewing you knows more about the topic than I do myself, who has written the book on the topic. You'd be stumped. What do you do? What do you say? We have a, a situation here this morning in Mark chapter 12 that is much like that. You have these people who have great wisdom. They've studied for years. They've used arguments for years. They've won arguments for years. With the same arguments, the same way that they're using their verbiage and their words, they have won many different arguments, and now they come up against one who not only has the answer, but knows all things. What we're going to learn clearly this morning is that the Word of God and Holy Scripture is the final authority in God's kingdom. We have been discussing the authority, the challenge against Christ's authority in chapter 12, 27 to 33. We've looked at the authority of the Son of Man that comes from the Father in chapter 12, 1 through 12. We've seen the authority that we are to be in submission to as unto God in chapter 12, 13 through 17. And we'll now we'll see that the Word of God and Holy Scripture is the final authority in God's kingdom. All that one needs to know even this morning concerning life, death, worship, relationships, resurrection can be known and found in the Word of God. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this section in two different parts this morning. Verse 18 through 27 will be the first one. And then 28 through 34. Let's look first at 18 through 27. I've entitled this section, The Power of God. Right away, you see the Sadducees have come to him. As we've noted previously, this is the third wave of opposition to Christ. Probably the same day. Probably in the same spot in the temple. Chapter 12, 27, you saw the chief priests, scribes, and elders that came in opposition. Chapter 12, verse 13, you saw the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. This morning, we see the Sadducees. We should not be surprised, brothers and sisters, of opposition against Christianity. It happened to Christ, it'll happen to us, and it happened in waves. The Sadducees were primarily of wealthy, priestly families in Jerusalem. The Jew Jewish historian Josephus claims that they were unfriendly, even to one another. And they were unpopular among the Jewish people. They held to the Pentateuch. They held to the writings of Moses almost exclusively for doctrine. They were notorious for their disbelief in the resurrection. And they held the doctrine of the resurrection to be a later innovation or an extra biblical doctrine. Acts 23 verse 8 tells us that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Acts 23 telling us that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in opposition to one another, and yet here, seemingly united in opposition to Christ. 
They come to Christ with a question, and like the previous people before them, they come to trap him. They pose the question, Teacher, Moses, remember that's where they're gaining much of their doctrine, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're taking the teaching of Moses, as was taught about Leverite marriage in Deuteronomy 25, and they're pitting it against the doctrine of the resurrection to prove a point in many ways. See, they and their minds are playing out the story of the absurdity of something like the resurrection. Because they're thinking, if there is the resurrection, then there would be adultery. Because you have these seven men who have followed the teachings of Moses and one wife. There can be no resurrection because there would be the sin of adultery, as was also told by Moses. Christ's response was to take them to what they knew in defense of the resurrection. Before he does so, though, he begins with this rebuke. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. That today, as it was then, is still the central core of false teaching. We do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. If we do not know the power of God to overcome death and to give life, even eternal life. In essence, what he's telling them is you have a small view of God. Your view of God is small compared to the greatness as proclaimed in Scripture. Your God is limited in his power and might. You read the Scriptures wrong and you limit the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we know as believers in Jesus Christ that before the power of God, the difficulty of all things, the difficulty of a resurrection vanishes. Before the power of God, the difficulty of eternity vanishes. Before the power of God, the difficulties of this life vanish and are vanquished. You don't hold paper on your lap this morning. You hold the word of God. That word contains the power of God because it is the word of God. It's not as if we're reading some dusty tome written by some man who's now dead. It's the word of God, the living God, the God that is not contained or constrained by time or space, the God who was and is and will always be. The God who has always existed and will always exist. Therefore the, word of God, therefore, the Word of God, the Bible, is always relevant. Because He's always been. He's living. My words to my wife this afternoon will be relevant for that moment. But I will one day die, and that word will no longer be relevant for that moment. But God never dies, He's always been. He's living. Therefore, his word never changes. And it's always applicable. It's not just applicable for certain times in history, but always applicable. Because God does not change, and time does not constrain or change. This should humble us in how we handle the word of God. If the power of God is in his word, 
and we can see the power of God in His Word, then this isn't something that should grow dusty on our shelf. This is not something that, by my own confession and admittance, as we oftentimes do, we delay through the day. I have other things I need to do. Things are more pressing. We should be humbled. We should seek the Word of God correctly. And we should seek to handle it correctly. Sadducees are not handling the Word of God correctly. In fact, they're trying to pit God's Word against another part of God's Word. Psalm 62, 11. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. This is the doctrine of omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, and there's no one like Him. God powerful enough to raise someone from the dead. He continues, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's a difficult passage. Are you saying that the 25, 30, 40, 50, 60, 10 years of marriage that I have had, where I have grown to love this other person. It's just for you. I don't, I don't get to have that relationship with that person in heaven. I think sometimes we oftentimes have a small view of heaven. I can remember as a child hearing about a birthday party I got to go to. I was going to get to go to. Maybe two, three weeks down the road and thinking, but what about if Jesus comes back? going to miss the birthday party. Now, I have grown a little bit in my understanding of Scripture, because back then I thought, well, I'll just think Jesus is going to come back today, because the Bible says no one knows when Jesus is going to come back. So if I know he's coming back today, he can't come back today, therefore my party will be attended. <laughs> grown a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. We have a small view of heaven, though. The Bible does indicate that we will recognize people in heaven and even have relationships with them. But hear me clearly. However much you love your spouse, if Christ were to come back today and even you singles had never experienced the joy and glory of marriage, let me assure you that whatever relationships will be like in heaven, we know one thing. They will be perfect relationships. Perfect Relationships, No sin, no selfishness. In fact, the love and joy of friendship in heaven will be far greater than what we can experience in even the closest relationship here on earth. Marriage is simply a picture of the intimate relationship between Christ and his private church. But it's just a picture. So even if you're currently married now, or those who will even never marry, in heaven you won't have the picture, you have the reality of intimate relationship with God. It will be perfect. The best day of your marriage will pale in comparison to the glory of being with that person in heaven with no sin, no selfishness. Complete unity and joy and love for God and His Son Christ. We would have no hope in this life if we had no hope if we had no promise of the resurrection. The, the, the Christian 
faith, Christianity. We differ from every other religion because our hope in a resurrection is not based in us. It's not based in our our good works. It's not based in in the fatal hope of a limited, false, small-g God, hoping that somehow he's going to like us that day. Our hope in the resurrection is based completely in the all-powerful, true, and loving God, the creator of life, and the sovereign over death. So we have all faith and hope for a resurrection. Our bodies will be raised and made imperishable. The resurrected body, the whole body, God saves the whole person. Not just your soul, but the body as well will rise. Nothing will be lost from your body, but all gained. Our bodies will be at our ultimate, eternal best. Psalm 17, 15 tells us, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy light. Do you long for that day? Is that all that will really satisfy you? Is that you might be with Christ for eternity? Nothing today, nothing tomorrow, nothing next year will satisfy like that. And the, the satisfaction we look to, based in the power of God, the hope of the resurrection is what helps us with the things of today and tomorrow and next year that do not ultimately satisfy. One of the things he says here is there's not going to be any marriage. One of the reasons is because one of the purposes for marriage is to multiply. Death takes life. Marriage provides a way to bring new life into the world. In in heaven, there is no death, therefore no need to perpetuate humanity. He says we will be like we will be like angels in heaven. We're not going to be angels. We're going to be like angels in heaven. We know from the scriptures that angels are not married. We know that angels, oftentimes in scripture, are used to serve God. They're in communion with God. They're worshiping God. They're declaring His praises and attributes. We'll take on that likeness of how we relate to God. The Bible tells us more of what we will be like. Romans 8, 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Luke tells us this in the corresponding passage to Mark 12. We will be the children of God and like Him. How? Our Father is immortal, and therefore we will also gain that immortality as it is passed on to us in heaven. Heaven is a glorious place filled with goodness and grace. 1 Corinthians 2.9 It is written, What no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, but God has prepared for those who love Him. Are you assured of your heavenly dwelling this morning? Are you assured of your heavenly dwelling? We find our assurance in the blood of Christ alone. Notice how Christ defends the, the false twist that the Sadducees are putting on the Word of God. He could have taken to numerous places in the Old Testament. He doesn't. <clears throat> he takes them to something they know well. He takes them to Exodus 3, verse 6. He takes them to the Pentateuch. And notice he doesn't say, you know, Exodus 3 says. He doesn't give them book, chapter, verse, but references the place in history. That time, remember that time when Moses saw the burning bush? 
And how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Not only was God then, but he was the I am God. He was the living God. The basis and hope of the resurrection, Christ is noting, is in the character of God. If God is faithful and covenant-keeping, death itself cannot undermine the promises and faithfulness of God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, us as well. That's the argument Christ is using here. What a weak God we would have if his promises were only valid for the short duration of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But no, he's the God of the living. He is the living God, and his promises extend even now to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see this all the way into the book of Hebrews. His promises never end. His faithfulness is always great. Even now, Abraham enjoys the blessings of God's covenant. And upon the basis of God's character, we today find our hope and security that we will one day have our bodies resurrected if we are to die before Christ's return. We serve the only living God. We serve the God of great power and might. Power so great that even death cannot constrain His power. Power so great that He's the one who determines the terms of the kingdom. Let's look at the second section, 28-34. It is God's kingdom. Notice, shift in opposition. Sadducees, and here comes one of the scribes. Now, 28 doesn't give us much indication as to what the dispute was, whether or not they were referring to the dispute between Christ and the Sadducees. Acts 23 gives us some indication that the Pharisees had oftentimes dispute with the Sadducees. So it may have been, the Sadducees give this statement, Christ responds, the Pharisees over here who believe in the resurrection, and they sort of get into this little argument, and maybe there's this one man on the outside, maybe he was a Pharisee, maybe not, but they know him as a scribe, you sort of see him come up and talk to Christ. He, again, is coming to test, but this man has a bit of a different heart. He's testing, but he's also teachable. He questions, what commandment is the most important of all? This was an often debated question among the Pharisees. They were to debate to determine which commandment is weighty and which one is light in the Old Testament. Which one's more important, which one's less important. Christ even rebukes them in Matthew 23. Verse 23, he says, You tied the mint, the dill, the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Which one's the most important? You who have no training, you who just appear on the scene, you who are undermining our authority, tell us which one's the most important. Jesus answers, He knows the word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He begins with the Shema, the Hebrew prayer that is still prayed today by Jews twice a day. He begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Notice again that the kingdom of God, the terms of the kingdom, 
is based in the unique character of God. That he's one. He's, he's not a, he doesn't have multiplicity. He's not like the false gods that the opposing nations to Israel would worship. He's one God. The God. And that the unique character of God is again at the foundation of our complete allegiance to him. And he quotes Christ's quotes here from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. As he gets into this law language, and you shall. That's law language. God is commanding the people of Israel as he's commanding us to do something. He's not commanding us to fear, though he does in other places. He's not commanding us ultimately to hope, though he does command us to hope. He's not commanding us to trust, though he does. He's not commanding us to do certain deeds, though he does. Ultimately here, he's saying, you shall, you must love. Love is the summation of the Christian life. Love is the summation of God's relationship with us. Love is the summation of our relationship with God. Love is the summation of how we relate to others. William Lane in his study of the Gospel of Mark says, because the whole man is the object of God's covenant love, the whole man is claimed by God for himself. To love God in the way defined by the great commandment is to seek God for his own sake, to have pleasure in him and to strive impulsively after him. Jesus demands a decision and readiness for God and for God alone in an unconditional manner. Clearly, this cannot be the subject of legal, legal enactment. It is a matter of the will and action. The love which determines the whole disposition of one's life and places one's whole personality in the service of God reflects a commitment to God which springs from divine sonship. Notice he uses the word all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The terms of the kingdom are impossible to meet. Christ is declaring the terms of the kingdom as defined by God, and they are impossible for us to keep. We cannot do this. But Christ did. Christ did this perfectly. He loved God with all of his being, all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, fully and completely. And it is upon his grace, and upon his grace, and upon his grace, and upon his grace, that we are strengthened to walk by faith in the Son of God. And the more that faith grows, the more like Christ we become, the closer to the terms we appear, the more glory he gets. So we sing songs like, I surrender all. But we also sing songs like, Jesus paid it all. Enabling us to sing songs like, all I have is Christ. All. This is the, this is the language of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Christ has saved all of you. He's not wanting part of you. He's not wanting just a little bit here or there. He wants all of you because he has laid down his life for all of you. Which is, which is incomprehensible. The fact that we are born in sin 
The fact that we have been rebellion in sin against God. We've been under the curse of sin. We've been deserving of the righteous wrath of God. But by His saving grace, He has given us all His love. And that's all He wants. He wants all of His love. To be all for you. He, all of His love is all for you. That all of your love might be for Him. He gave His only begotten Son for you. We're not called to love some idol. We're not called to love some God, small g, with limited power. We're called to love the one true and living God. The one unique in character and being. The one unlike any other who's ever been or ever will be. We're called to love the God who did something no other idol could ever do. God loved us first. An idol can't love us first. An idol can't love you. But God loved you and sent His Son for you. What is commanded by God for His children is enabled by God. We see this in the second commandment. And He lists you, the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting there from Leviticus 19.18, the genius of Christ here is that He fuses these two sections of Scripture together. Instead of being separate, the second is an overflow of the first. The, 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 these two together are summarizing the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are summed up in loving God, the following six in loving our neighbor. Luke 10, 25-37, the story of the, great, of the Good Samaritan, this man who helps another man. This story that is told there, summed up with, who is your neighbor? He says, the one who showed mercy. The second commandment here given to us, we can understand much more clearly than the first. Because the second commandment, almost tongue-in-cheek, plays off our natural inclination. We are naturally lovers of self. You don't have to teach a child how to love himself. He's born with that ability. I naturally love and care for myself more than others. We know that this love for myself is at the core of my sin, our sin against God. I love myself more than God. I commit heavenly treason against God. I sin against God who loved me first and loves me still. And so Christ here telling us, the well-known love you have for yourself is the barometer of how you ought to love others. That love is going to look like God's love for us. God has extended mercy to us in our sin. We are to show mercy to our neighbor. The scribe's response here is telling. He says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other beside him to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength. And the loved one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It was well known, it is well known in, the whole, in, in Holy Scripture in the Old Testament. Hosea 6.6, 6, Psalm 51, Micah 6, other places where we learn that God desires love, complete allegiance. Better than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
The greatest response to the love of God is to love Him in return. That's what He's looking for. There's nothing greater than He desires. Christ points to this answer as being wise. And the reason is because this scribe has understood that the summation of the law is a proclamation of demands of a messianic kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom, more than simply a legal argument. It's the demands, it's the terms of the king of kings, of the heavenly kingdom. And so he states, you're not far from the kingdom. Notice a bit in closing this man's description, the scribe, he gives a wise answer. He has a genuine interest. He's religious. He's well-studied. He knows his Bible. But he's not in the kingdom. Maybe he is now, we don't know, but in this passage, he's not far from the kingdom. You can be a millimeter from the kingdom and still go to heaven, and still go to hell. You can be a millimeter from the kingdom from heaven and still go to hell. Being almost the kingdom is not in the kingdom. So if your if your security this morning is based upon what you know, the attendance in church, how well you've read your Bible, how interested you are in religious matters, if that's the security of your faith, of your eternal state in heaven, it's a false security. You're far from the kingdom, though may be close. You might recognize the truth of the word, but unless your faith, unless your security is in the work of Christ's blood alone for the salvation of your soul from sin, you are far from the kingdom. The good news is, is that the free gift of eternal life and saving faith in Christ is available to you. The proper response is simple and yet profound. Repent and believe. Believe that Christ has paid for your sin. Turn from your sin and trust Him. Do not trust your actions. Do not trust your, your good deeds. Do not trust your knowledge. Trust Christ alone. And you will be saved. God's the one who does the saving work. We cannot do the saving work. It is God alone who saves. Brothers and sisters, we serve the all-powerful God. Let's not be ignorant of that power this morning, as the Sadducees were. We serve the God who has power to raise the dead to life. He has the power to save. His word dictates the terms of His kingdom. Let us not be ignorant of the power of His word in our life this week. Pick up your Bible. Listen to sermons. His power through the Holy Spirit enables us and will enable us to live as ambassadors of that heavenly kingdom. What a great God we serve. What a good God we serve that He has given us Christ. And I pray that your faith might be strong in the work of Christ that is based in the power of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
No one dared to ask Christ any more questions after these matters. Because the answer was perfect. We thank you that we can see clearly in Scripture this morning your power and the terms of your kingdom. And we're grateful, Father, that the terms are not something we can eat. I could never in my own strength give all to you, my God. But by the saving work of Christ, you have bought all of me. And you give me grace to follow you, to repent of sin, to have my confidence in eternal life, in the risen, reigning, ruling Christ, the Son of God who has power alone to save. Thank you for your word that has great power this morning. I pray that it might land with great power upon our hearts even this morning, upon our minds, and lift us and strengthen us for this week. Humble us if needed, Father, but encourage our hearts to look to Christ. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.